Welcome to the Profitable Farmer Podcast, where it's all about increasing the profitability of your farm by working smarter, not harder. G'day everyone and welcome once again to Profitable Farmer. Um, It's a little bit wet here and I hope it is for you as well. Um, Negative five here this morning and a pea super fog, so um, we are in the thick of winter. Um, I'm delighted in this podcast and to build on the last one where I shared a little bit about the Farm Owner Academy strategy, perhaps as a bit of an example for just how important it is to allocate time to the critical thinking and the strategic effort that goes into building out a kick-ass business plan. Um, I shared a little bit around how it is that we are expanding our team in setting the foundations for growth. And I mentioned in that podcast that we had recruited a general manager in Sam Johnson. I'm delighted in this podcast and in this discussion to introduce Sam to you. Sam is Greg's son. Greg is, as you know, the founder of Farm Owners Academy. I'm delighted to welcome Sam to our team and certainly into a leadership role with us. Just by way of introducing Sam, Sam has an engineering and finance degree out of the Adelaide University and um, worked for Oricon for 10 years post uni. And over that time, worked his way through that company to become the youngest director in his region, being South Australia, or one of the youngest members of that leadership team. And in his latter time with that company, managed and led a team of over 60 staff providing advisory and building engineering services locally, nationally and internationally. As I say, we're delighted to have Sam on our team and now leading our project. And I'm delighted to introduce him to you guys today. So Sam, welcome. Thanks, Hutch, and welcome, everyone. It's really uh, great to be here and be part of this awesome business that is Farm Owners Academy and this amazing community across Australia. Thanks, Sam. So, mate, you grew up on KI, which um, you know, is the home of and, and the founding place of Farm Owners Academy. Just um, give me a little insight, mate, if you could, on what it was like to grow up on Kangaroo Island. It's a pretty special place. Yeah, it's an awesome place to grow up, Hutch, and I just feel really privileged to have spent uh, the first 15 years of my life over there, um, uh, built some really good friendships and, you know, being able to just sort of be involved in, you know, a rural community growing up. It's um, You've got many families in a place like that and uh, being able to, you know, go out and light fires and, you know, um, ride motorbikes and, um, whatever else it was on the weekends that we used to get up to that we shouldn't have um, out out with uh, the mates on farms that was was awesome. Um, but um, I think at also at times you can feel a little bit isolated in in um, rural communities. And so at fifteen, much to my disgust, I was sent to boarding school, um, which was really good for opening my horizon um, and sort of challenging my ideas around what the normal were. Um, so, yeah, so from 15 onwards, I've been in Adelaide, um, basically out of Kangaroo Island, but uh, got back there and do go back there whenever I can. Sam, many of our 
members and certainly many of our alumni members um, are still in recovery mode after the fires that went through KI now 18 months ago. Um, just while we reflect on what it is to be a community member of KI, just a shout out to you all. Just want you to know that um, our team and our community is thinking of you and, and that we're here in support. And um, again, we admire the resilience and the courage that you've shown over the last 18 months um, post that adversity and just how you're recovering. Sam, do you have anything to add there about um, what you've witnessed in terms of recovery on KI? Well, I think that's a touched on the rural community, but it is, once again, one of the benefits of being in a community like that is just the support um, that exists there and uh, the way everyone's turning up to, um, you know, provide that support across across Kangaroo Island to rebuild. Um, you know, I think I was listening to someone who'd been in the CFS for their whole life over on Kangaroo Island, they're in their 70s, and uh, I think they said they'd maybe lost one house to a bushfire in the time that they've been over there and we lost you know something like 60 houses um on on those couple of days so just something like no one would ever have seen before um but you know i think out of that there is opportunity and and people are starting to see that opportunity and and um bouncing back and it is awesome to see so um you know if anyone's listening and thinking about a holiday get over and support kangaroo it's an awesome place yeah i was lucky enough to get over there sam late last year to hang out and spend time with our members there and it is a beautiful and a wonderful place so to your point if you haven't yet made that a priority it is a bucket list item and I can't recommend it highly enough. Sam just to launch into the conversation for today I see you you've just got so many strengths but strategy analysis project leadership um, so many skills, but one of the things that I admire about you is how you deal with and manage people. And over the course of this conversation, I'd like that to be the theme for our discussion. Um, and in focusing there, hopefully help our listeners deal with the many different types of personalities and characters that we have to work with within our families, within our businesses, um, within our supplier base, our contractor base on farm, um, there are so many personalities and so many characters. I think this is a real strength of yours. And no doubt um, with the success you've had as you've moved through the Oricon business, you'll have dealt with just masses of personalities. And so I'm looking forward to exploring that theme with you. Just before we do, would you mind just giving everyone a bit of context as to who Oricon are and um and how they were to be to work with and and what that team was like to be part of. Absolutely, it's um it is an awesome business. Um, so Oricon is a, a privately owned um, corporation. Still, is about um, three and a half thousand employees across Australia, New Zealand, and Asia at the moment, providing engineering and advisory services to large infrastructure projects uh, primarily. Uh, I was working in the buildings department in Adelaide and um, when I graduated from uni, uh, started in that business as a structural engineer. Um, so I worked on some pretty cool projects like the Adelaide Convention Centre, um, 
stage one and stage two and um, you know a number of other large buildings projects um, across Adelaide did a few residential developments and things like that um, and then uh, wanted to use my finance degree more so started getting involved in what we call infrastructure advisory which is really around um, looking at the front end business case and planning of projects and um, you know, helping arrange funding and those sorts of things um, and making good, basically good investment decisions about infrastructure um, in the best interests of the long-term, you know, needs of the community um, and or, you know, businesses and what they were trying to achieve. So um, that was sort of the first five or six years of my career was focused in that. Um, and through that process was just sort of working my way up in the business. Um, and then just before I turned... 30, um, I was asked to come and lead the buildings team in Oricon in Adelaide, which is a team of sort of 65 people um, operating, you know, primarily in the building space. So for the last three years before leaving, I was running that team um, responsible for basically everything, team management, delivering on the business's strategy um, within our team and within our region, and then also making sure we met our sales targets and financial KPIs. Sam, when you reflect back to your time at uni, how much people management training was there within your engineering and finance degrees? Uh, bugger all. I think we did one subject called, um, it's called engineering management or something like that in final year. And um, you know, you did some profiling on, uh, you know, personality types and those kinds of things, but um, we didn't do a great deal. One of the things that I was blessed with at Oricon is they did have a really good graduate development program and an internal leadership development program. So, um, you know, I was exposed to a whole heap of training there, uh, formal training, which was was awesome, including some work with Melbourne Business School. Um, but also um, just being around really strong leaders in the business and learning from them and being mentored by them was also a real privilege. It's interesting. I guess I just asked that because it speaks to the point that so many of us are technically trained um, and the technical training is incredibly thorough and incredibly thoughtful. Um, you know, surgeons, dentists, engineers, architects, farm business managers, agronomists, but nowhere necessarily do we learn people management. It's something that we, by default, almost have to pick up on the run. Um, and unless we're exposed to those sorts of leadership programs that you've been part of, a lot of us are just winging it, Sam, um, in small business and in farm business leadership. Um, and as a result, you know, so much might go wrong. What would be your comment there? I completely agree. I think... Um you know, particularly in engineering and I think a bit the same in, in farming and things like that as well, is it's there's a lot of science to it and there's, there's often a right answer um, and one way to do things and a most efficient way to do things. And I think the resounding um, overlay with people is that there's, there's multiple different ways to achieve an outcome um, and that most people issues take time to resolve. There's not, there's not like a sugar coating or a quick fix to a lot of these issues they take they take time and energy um, and space to think through issues and work through issues and um, the minute that you try and approach one of those you know um, situations in a way that's that's the fast route or whatever you you run the risk of making the wrong decision has been my experience 
Sam, I reckon we've all got a certain people management or leadership style, and I'm I'm willing to wager that across Oricon, you've dealt with a whole lot of executives and people more senior, perhaps, than you, and a huge diverse range of styles. How would you describe your management style? Um, yeah, it's a good it's a good question, um, Hutch. Um, I I think um, I would say I've got a collaborative leadership style, but I'm not afraid to make a decision. So, um, you know, I I do like to involve people in the decision-making process and I like to understand, um, you know, different opinions and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I think as business leaders, you've got to realise that, you know, leadership's not a dictatorship, but business is not a democracy. So, you know, at the end of the day, someone's accountable and responsible for making the decision. Um, and whilst you might canvas ideas with people and, you know, encourage them to provide input and insight into a decision, at the end of the day, um, you're in a role where you're responsible and accountable for that decision. So, you know, you need to take ownership for it and um, get on with it. So, um, yeah, I, I think um, I used to always try and lead in a collaborative way and encourage, you know, the, the input out of the, the group that I had around me because there was so much more experience in them than there was in me alone. So I wanted to hear that and I wanted to gather that um, and, uh, you know, hear different opinions from different people with different experiences. But um, at the end of the day, um, it was my decision to make. Perhaps before we dig into this topic a little more deeply, Sam, what are you most proud of about your latter few years at Oricon and um, perhaps the impact you had on that team or what your team was able to achieve? Um, probably it's, it's a hard question because of so many things that I'm proud of. I think, um, I think the, the thing I'm most proud of towards the end, um, or over that three years was just, uh, being able to build followership within my team. So, um, you know, I think, um, when you're put into a management position, this is perhaps true for me when I first started being a younger person, um, you, you know, you're you're appointed to a role, right? So, um, you know, people are leading you because you're in that role, uh, following you because you're in that role. But for me, leadership is about followership and, um, you know, building uh, a relationship and a rapport with the team around you and they follow you because they feel that you have their business, their and the business's best interests at heart and that they know, um, you know, that, the decisions you're making are the best decisions. So, yeah, that followership aspect of it, in my view, was was what I'm most proud of. What is what is followership? And if you reflect, how how did you create that? What what would you say that you know the, the couple of keys from your perspective to achieving that? Yeah, it's a well, it's a good question. Once again, Hutch, I, I, look, I think what what followership is for me is it's that. Um, you know, it's it's people are um, they'll they'll come to you to seek advice, right? So it's not, you know, they're not following you because you're you're telling you're in a role where you have to make the decision, and that's part of your role description. They come to see you because they view you or they value your opinion, and they feel that you know that um, they value your input in their process of making a decision as well. So that for me is the followership. It's influence. Um, you know, it's the 
it's the ability to impact a decision or a, a, an outcome outside of your kind of direct sphere of um, uh, of, of report or whatever else. So it's you know across across business units, um, you know, building relationships with people outside of my team who were my peers who would come and seek um, seek advice from me. I think it was you know what I would describe as followership. So bringing that back to our listeners and our farming families, are your people, family or employed, are they following you because you happen to own the checkbook or are they following you because you inspire them in a way that they want to follow you? Um, I think it's a really important distinction. I think as small business owners, we get to crack the whip and, and often maybe our businesses can look and feel a bit like a dictatorship. Um, but it is worthwhile just checking in on how engaged are my people really and am I turning up to them and inspiring them and influencing them in the direction that I want to go or are they order taking ultimately? Are they just doing what they're told because, as I say, you've got the checkbook? Sam, comment there. Yeah, completely agree, mate. And I think in as your team gets bigger, it, it's harder to rule that way because, um, you know, you're, you don't have a direct line of communication with a large chunk of your team. Um, so you, you are having to lead through influence and action um, and um, you're reliant on, you know, your clarity of message and, um, you know, what it is that, you're wanting to achieve and how it is that you engage with everyone around you um, to help, you know, create that consistency of outcome across the team. It's not just um, about, you know, the direct communication you're having with them on a day-to-day basis and, the, um, you know, the salary you pay them because there's plenty of other people who are happy to pay them a good salary as well. Yeah, I've, I've heard it said, Sam, that in the professional sector that, of people leave their job because they don't respect or look up to or want to continue to work with their direct manager. It's not about the company. It's not about the pay packet. It's not about the the benefits. Most people leave and try and find another job because they don't respect the person that they're directly reporting to. Would you agree with that? I would, yeah. I'd agree with that. And I I think it's... um... You know, there's a um, an aspect of, uh, you know, one is respect, but there's also indifference, I think, about them and their career path. So, you know, showing an interest in what it is that people are trying to achieve in their lives and their careers um, and, you know, being a supporter of them within within your business to, you know, to achieve that and see how their goals can align with yours is a big part of helping keep people hang around. It's an easy point to skip over, but I might just suggest we spend a bit of time there. You, you mentioned um, indifference. How important is it as part of creating followership to be intimate and show the people that you work with that you genuinely care? Oh, I think it's I think it's critical, Hutch. Like, um, you know, in a particularly in bigger teams, it's it's easy. You know, it's easy if I was having a bad day to walk into the office in a, you know, in a bad mood, and um, you know, that might be the one interaction I have with that junior engineer who's been in the business for you know a year 
that might be one of four interactions I have with that person for the year. And if they have a bad experience because of how you're behaving, um, you know, you, you've undone whatever other hard work someone else might have been putting into that person and their development. So, you know, I think it's so critical to be able to rise above whatever else is going on and try and build those positive connections and feel like you understand, you know, your team really well. I have to say, um, you know, it's a skill that you have to work hard at and um, it's not something that I did perfectly, I'd have to admit either. Um, you know, it's um, particularly when things aren't going well, it's difficult to to keep yourself in that right mindset, but it's just so critical that you, you know, that you are taking the time that you need to to invest into your employees. The other thing you mentioned, Sam, was sort of knowing their goals and drawing that link between their goals and the goals of the company. Um, would you mind speaking to that and, and what was your approach to actually helping or getting that deeper sense of understanding um, of your team members' goals and aspirations that they might have for themselves and then, you know, matching that back to the, the goals of the company? Yeah, so I think, once again, Oricon had a pretty good performance review process. I think there were some things that I didn't, like about it but there was a lot that was good about it and um, one of those was that everyone had a direct line manager and that line manager and that employee had a one-hour conversation or between half hour and one hour conversation about that person's career and their development every month so you'd be investing into um, that person understanding what it is you know that how they think they're going what they're wanting to achieve in their career um, and also helping them understand how they be successful within the team at Oricon um, that they are operating within and how what they were doing contributed to the, the broader goal. Um, so obviously we were reliant on that line management group um, in feeding back uh, things and there were some other surveys and stuff that we would do as well. But, um, you know, really it's just about investing some time and I think, an, you know, an hour a month is a pretty small investment in someone. Um, who spends 40 hours a week working for you. So, um, you know, if that hour a month results in a few hours extra discretionary effort or someone thinking, uh, you know, going above and beyond in their role because they're really clear on what it is you're trying to achieve or they're really clear on how their contribution makes a difference, um, you know, it's just it's the best hour you'll spend every month. So many companies that I've seen and worked with, Sam, they might do that once a year. You know, we have an annual performance reviews probably, but most most businesses and most small businesses in my experience don't even do it annually. Um, but then the, the, the mindset, I think, in most companies is that we have an annual salary review and an annual performance review. How much more powerful do you think it is having a monthly performance review? And to your point, imagine on farm if that was something that you undertook to do with your overseers and your farm team. Um just to make them feel special by giving them half an hour once a month just to talk about their development and how they're going to progress with you in your business. But Sam, can you just speak to the value of doing it monthly rather than annually? Yeah, I think um, the two, two things that were my focus or that I used to try and focus on with our team around that. So one was that there's no surprises for that. Um, we, we still did our performance review and our salary review annually so 
but like where you'd actually sit down and rating and go through a formal process and calibration across the whole team and whatever else it used to take a whole heap of time um but um my my real preference was that there were no surprises in that so no what no staff member should get to their performance review and be surprised by the outcome that they got if the line manager is doing their job properly and so that requires you to have candid conversations every month about performance you can't just sugarcoat it and then come and give them a really poor result at, in the performance review and say there's no money here um, you know that's it's on you to have those conversations throughout the year and take take action on that um, so I think that was really important um, and then the other one was making sure that that conversation is focused about them and their development uh, and not about what you want to achieve so um, you know being clear on you know, you might have some feedback you want to provide them in that conversation, but focusing it around first, what is it that they're trying to do and, and how do they want to develop? So, again, just, just for our farming families listening, um, just a shout-out just to reflect for a minute on how strong are your career conversations with those in your team. Now, you might have a son and a daughter-in-law or you know, a son and a daughter and no employed team, I would still argue that this is sufficiently important. Or you might have one or two on your farm team. With them, how strong and how frequent are the career conversations or the, the development conversations that you're having with them? And is this an opportunity to formalise those um, and to make them perhaps a little more frequent? I think in terms of engaging people and enrolling people, and as Sam said, creating that loyal followership, frequent conversations that are intently focused on individuals within our team is such an important part of good management. Yeah, and I think I think hey, if you don't ask, how do you know? Like there's really um you know, you can guess, you can spend a lot of time guessing about this stuff and you'll probably get it wrong. So why not just take some time and ask? And um, you might be amazed at what you uncover. And, it, you know, you could be thinking that throwing more money at something is the way you fix the problem, but often it's not. Often there's something else that people want. Yep, great point, Sam. So, mate, would you mind speaking to the diversity of characters, individuals, personalities that, that you dealt with in that role leading sort of 60, 65-plus people? Yeah. Um, so I guess um, I guess had a diversity in terms of age. So we had people that were just starting their career and graduating from university uh, right up to people who were, you know, in their 60s in, in my team. And so as a, you know, 30-year-old, I was leading, thrust into a leadership position where I was leading people who had recruited me into the business. So that was a, an interesting challenge. And then I guess within that, um, and Hutch, you talk about the DIS profile, but Oricon was pretty good at that as well. But we'd, um, you know, I'd have people on every you know, extreme of that quadrant within my team as well. So obviously engineers are quite analytical and we'd have people sitting in there, but there'd also be some really big characters and some quite dominant, you know, people that took a fair bit of managing and, you know, could create quite a bit of havoc in a, um, in a, t in a large team environment when they perhaps said something a little bit less thoughtfully than they, than they could have. Um, so, you know, I think there was a, there was a diversity in terms of that. And then, you know, Oricon had a real focus on, diverse teams themselves so 
constructing, you know, diverse in gender, in age, in thought, um, in um, background, cultural and, and otherwise. So, um, you know, it was, I guess there was there was a lot of differences across the team and, you know, trying to piece teams together in a way that, um, you know, got the best outcome for our clients was really the challenge, I guess. So having a group of people that would come together around a common purpose but didn't necessarily all think the same was what we try and create. Sam, you mentioned DISC personality profiling. I'd encourage all of you to have a listen to the podcast I did a few months ago on DISC profiling. Um, and if you're interested in applying that across your team, just flick us an email at support at farmownersacademy.com and we could send you a link to um, that profiling exercise. But it's a really interesting um, process to work through to understand the different personality types that exist within any team and how to construct teams so that there is that diversity of personality um, and diversity of skill set that Sam speaks to around every project. Sam, with that diversity of personality and character, um, I'm keen, if you could, just to reflect on a few things with me. How do you handle and adapt in your style when you come up against some of those personalities. So just to give you an example, if you're dealing with someone who's um, a trailblazer, direct, dominant, perhaps overbearing in meetings, um, the alpha male, so to speak, yep. what's your approach with them compared to someone who's the opposite of that more gentle, softly spoken, slow-paced nurturing in their style how do you go about adapting and managing those various characters in a given situation so i think um this is one of the great things about this profile as well hutch is that it gives you some strategies about how to work with those different personality types and to adjust you know your style but i think as a leader you you kind of you're flipping between you know, different personas yourself to kind of deal with the different personality traits that you might be dealing with. So in the case of the the dominant person, you know, particularly in group meetings and those sorts of things or, um, you know, when you're talking um, with the broader team and whatever, they, they tend to want to voice their opinions all the time. They don't create any space. They're a bit like a bull in a china store. They'll say something and then think about it later um, and it can be quite disruptive so um, particularly for some of the ones who are in more senior positions I'd spend a fair bit of time with them beforehand just getting them clear on what it is that I was wanting to communicate so that they were there to talk about that or that they were less likely to say something that kind of undid what that was um, unintentionally um, it was always coming from a good place it just sometimes there's a habit of saying things in the wrong way um, but also finding roles for those people that allows them to play out their strengths so they love getting things done right so as soon as you've made a decision to um to head in a direction they're the person you want to throw onto that task because they just get on with it and they you know they go and make the phone call or they start working on the document or they you know get the 10 people around them engaged into the task as well so you know using those people to 
um, get things started is really powerful um, versus your quiet, you know, person. Um, the, the most challenging thing for them is creating space or a space for them to think and then share their opinion. So you would need to, um, you know, ask ask them questions more. You know, they're never gonna they're never gonna bring forward an idea without being asked. So, you know, creating space for them to be able to provide thoughts. Um, we would use things like um, we used to use a lot of stuff called design led thinking, which is um, you know, different ways of having people kind of capture their ideas. And, you know, one of the strategies I'd use is get people to put their thoughts down on a post-it note or something first and then come together as a group and share those ideas. So that gave those quiet people an opportunity to kind of collect their thoughts alone first before sharing with a group where they would never be comfortable voicing it beforehand. Thank you. Yeah, it's a really interesting construct. And you know, what that speaks to is often in management, verbal communication is one form that we have to influence and to get a result. And we've got to constantly adapt that for the personalities that we're working with. But so often, if you can influence before the meeting or give someone the chance to write something down or even write something to them, in family farms and in small business, I think a lot of it is done verbally. I just want to encourage you to think about if, if you're up against a challenging situation with one of your team, think about the written word. Um, think about asking them to write something down so that they can collect their thoughts and then bring that back to you. There's different ways that we can communicate. Um, you know, we get the results we deserve and doing the same thing over and again and expecting a different result is the definition of insanity. So if you're coming up against challenges within your immediate team or with anyone around your business or family, just have a think about the different types of communication that you've got at your disposal and try something different that might inspire a different outcome. When there's conflict, Sam, um, or tension, how would you navigate that? So let's say someone is not performing or behaving in a way that is consistent with the team's values um, or they're creating real tension within the team. How would you confront that person and, and work through that issue with them? Um, well, I think the first thing is it's important to confront it early. Um, if you let those things go on, they tend to fester and they end up, you know, becoming a bigger issue than what they actually are. So um, depending, depend, depended on who it was, Hutch, but um, someone in the senior team, I would approach them directly. If it was someone more junior in my team, I would probably have a conversation with their line manager first and encourage them to deal with it. Um, you know, you don't want to be cutting across people and reaching down. I think this is an important thing for some of our farm owners um, to remember as they're building out their team. If you've put someone into a leadership role, the quickest way to undermine them is to to reach past them and deal with an issue that um, they should be dealing with. So, um, you know, first of all, encourage the people around you or whoever is responsible for, for resolving that to um, to go and deal with it. And then I'd always be happy to be there to support. So if I needed to be in that conversation because it was going to be difficult or after the initial conversation was going to be difficult, then we'd go and, we'd go and have a difficult conversation. But, um, you know, they 
Um, they were challenging at times, but they're never, you know, they were never, for mine, never, never really a problem. I think it was just it's something that just needed to be dealt with, and it was always better once people were given an opportunity to get their side of the story, you know, out, and then you could set your expectations really clearly with them. So, um, yeah, I, think, I guess that was always my approach. The other one that you can start to see a bit as your team grows is what I call three-way conversations. So, you know, person A is having a conversation with person B about person C, um, and that kind of happens all over the place rather than them just going to talk to person C about the issue that they have. So, you know, cutting through three-way conversations was always something that I'd focus on as well. So if that was happening or I found myself in the middle of one of those, then, you know, getting those two people together and maybe I'd have to facilitate that conversation. But, you know, cutting out that three-way conversation is, um, is, the, is really what needs to happen as soon as possible. I think that's such an important point when triangles in communication are created, that can really undermine the strength of a team. Um, and we've talked in previous conversations and podcasts about the importance of having a set of core values and having you know, a code of conduct or some ground rules around how your team is going to operate. I think it's really important that in those ground rules that there is one that speaks to exactly that point, Sam, that, you know, if I have a problem, I speak only with the person with whom I have the problem um, and that as teams we try and avoid creating those triangles. So, you know, it might be that there's, you know, two brothers and a mum and a dad and and um, sister-in-laws and brothers-in-laws in and around a farming business. I think it's so important in that dynamic that we do sit down together and agree to the ground rules. But I do encourage you that one of the ground rules has to speak to this point, that, that we're bold enough and strong enough to have conversations directly and with the person with whom we have the problem. Sam, um, how did you inspire that within the team that you led? Um. Well, I just I wasn't afraid to call it out in front of people either. And I guess, you know, I'm not necessarily saying it's the right way to go, but you know, particularly amongst my senior team, if it was happening, I'd just I'd make them have a conversation with the rest of the leaders in the in the room. And it just I just wouldn't allow that background current to happen. Like, you know, the the culture would try to create was that yes, um, we can disagree and we don't always have to align on what's going on. And you know, we might not um, agree wholeheartedly with with the position but the place to disagree is when all of us are sitting in a room together and um, you know talking through it together when we leave and we're out on the floor with the rest of the team um, you know we're united around the common purpose um, so yeah so that was sort of I guess the environment we tried to create within our leadership team and high level of counter I used to invest a fair bit into those guys as well um, as they did with their immediate reports around just trying to create that that culture and you know it didn't always work perfectly but I think nine times out of ten we had the key issues on the table you know before they became key issues. Yeah, so be bold enough to have those straight conversations in private so that you can be united in public. Yeah. I think another great point that you make, Sam, is that we don't have to agree to be aligned. And so I think often we hit stalemate in family businesses and small businesses because we're not in agreement. 
Um, I think, and again, speaking to prior podcasts, and I guess where we focus with our um, members within Farm Owners Academy is helping them get clear on the vision, the core values, the 10-year goals, the three-year goals, so that there is something that we can be aligned to. The ground rules that I just touched on are things that we can all own and be aligned to. Once you've got those things in place, then you can be aligned, but on any specific problem or challenge or decision or issue, you don't have to agree um, and you can still move forward. Sam, those constructs that we teach to farming families, um, how relevant are they in professional service land and in Oricon in keeping your team aligned over and above that constructive agreement? Um, oh, incredibly, um, incredibly important. I, a lot of the strategy that we would implement um, and be responsible for helping implement wouldn't always be the popular thing to do within the business. It was, you know, part of one of the challenges of being a leader in a in a matrix type organisation like that is that, you know, you've got strategy that you're implementing at a local level, which needs to cascade into the broader corporate strategy, um, and um, you know, not all of the things or the direction where the business is trying to go is the popular thing to do within your local region. So helping people understand why it is the right strategy and, you know, how um, it's going to benefit them and the business in the long term is a big part of what it is that you need to do. Um, but, you know, certainly people didn't always agree and, um, um, you know, but but the purpose was still clear and the alignment was still clear. And, um, you know, Oricon also, our performance review process was 50% on your outcomes. So, you know, your KPIs and, and um, how you performed in your role. And the other 50% was the way you did what you did. So how well did you align to the core values of the business and how well were you upholding those? And particularly at a leadership level, there was a big focus on how well you, you upheld the values. It's interesting that that's how the performance construct was set up, 50% on KPIs and 50% on conduct and how you turned up. Um, again, there's a real um, insight in that for our farming families who are looking at setting up incentives and even bonus structures across our business teams. Um, I think it's so important that there is incentive for people to go above and beyond. Um, and again, there's real opportunity in our farming families to think about how we do inspire that through the incentive structures that we have in place. Sam, you mentioned that you had to manage and lead people who had employed you into the company who were you know, 10, 20, even 30 years older than you. How did you um, go about managing people older than you um, at with respect such a young age in such a senior role how how would you practically navigate that I probably I don't know Hutch how I managed to survive to be honest I've probably made a lot of mistakes through the, the particularly the first 18 months I think in the role um, I was very lucky to have two incredibly strong mentors um, within the business and I would go to them quite regularly and bounce ideas off of them um, 
you know, and both of them were different in the way they'd approach things. One was very humanistic and caring and, um, you know, had he had 30 years' experience in the business but um, was also just, you know, an um, outstanding gentleman um, and would always approach things from, you know, the right thing to do from a people perspective. Uh, and the other was an incredible strategist and, um, you know, probably more of a D-type personality um, didn't tend to care too much about, you know, what um, what necessarily other people were wanting to do, but was very focused on what the right thing to do was. So, you know, I would go to both of them and seek opinions on, you know, this is what I think the right approach is. You know, how do you see it? And um, once I'd once I'd sort of bounced ideas off of them and and gleaned from them, I'd then go and implement it. But um, you know, I think early it was just trying to spend time getting to know those people and once again, what what were they wanting out of the business? Where were they trying to go in their careers and how could I help them achieve that? So, and I, and I didn't have all the answers at the start um, about how I could even help them do that, but I knew that if I understood that and I put the focus in the right area, I could, could, could get there. Um, and then I think the other thing was that really I approached our team a bit like a footy team. So, you know, you might not have everyone in the right seat at the start and some people might perhaps be, should perhaps be in a different team um, so or not in your team anymore. So, you know, that would be what I'd be spending a lot of my time doing is trying to work out, you know, where where people should be within the org structure and to perform at their best and use their strengths as best we could. Thanks, Sam. So I guess what I wanted to explore now is a few Again, digging deeper on people management, how did you or how do you go about holding people accountable? Yeah, it's a good question too, Hutch. Um, so I think if you get the right people in the room, it's not hard to hold them accountable. They all want to do the right thing, right? So they tend to be self-motivated and they tend to be high-performing, Um so I guess the first thing I'd say is just get the right people around you um, and, you know, focus on that first. You shouldn't have to be trying to motivate people um, to come to work. They they should come to work motivated themselves. So, um, you know, and then afterwards it was, it was about, um, you know, trying to be really clear on what it was that we were trying to achieve. And I think through COVID um, what I learned was that, there was business changes really quickly and, you know, the world changes really quickly and that we operate within. Um, and you, you don't, you can't plan or predict the, the, the whole future, but the thing that doesn't change is the principles that sit behind how you respond. So, you know, I had to switch from trying to be really um, focused around, you know, do X, Y, and Z, and you'll get this outcome. So these are the principles that will allow us to be successful and focus on holding people accountable as to how well they were upholding and delivering on those principles. How important is accountability in management? It's it's very it's very important. I think I think um, you know there's there's two layers to it, Hutch. Though I think there's you know it's important to be accountable and you know, do what you say you're going to do because that's basically how the whole world works is on promises. Um, but also as a leader to have some compassion when things don't fully work out. So, 
you know, there's not always, people aren't always going to achieve the goals that they set for themselves. And if you beat them up when they don't achieve something, particularly if they've bitten off something that's a pretty serious challenge, if you cut their head off when they stick their neck out, then next time they're going to take a really safe bet. And that's not always the right thing in business. So, you know, there needs to be a balance between holding people accountable around what they say they're going to do and also um, being okay if if they've um, taken a risk and, you know, you're supportive of that risk and it doesn't come off. I love the construct that we teach at farm owners around people needing to get it, want it, and have the capacity to deliver. So I'm just going to say that again, guys. They've got individuals in our team, to Sam's point, they've got to get it, they've got to want it, and they have to have the capacity to do it. And so you can think about any of your team members and ask those questions. Do they get it? Do they want it? And do they have the capacity to do it? And ultimately, our team members need to be able to tick all three. They might not have the capacity to do it now, but do they have the capacity to grow into it in the future? Um, To Sam's point, once you've found someone who gets it, who wants it, and has the capacity to grow with you in their role and get stuff done, then in my experience, to your point, Sam, holding people accountable um, on a weekly basis in weekly meetings or on a daily basis in, in those meetings or a monthly basis becomes a lot more simple when you have the right people on the bus. Yep, completely agree, mate. And I think then your role as a leader becomes more about helping them say yes to less and prior, like be focused on what are the really important things each week um, and also removing obstacles. So, you know, I think that's you know, or sheltering them from stuff that they perhaps don't need to be dealing with so that they can be focused on those things that you've decided are important. So I think that, you know, there, there's a different shift there. You don't, you know, I, I, I hated having people in my team who I felt I needed to micromanage or I wasn't, you know, I wasn't confident that if I um, set an out objective that, that they'd need me to be standing over them to do work. Like it just didn't work like that. Mm. Sam, in those situations where after a few catch-ups someone um, either doesn't get it, they don't want it, or they don't have the capacity. Um, you know, they're underperforming in their role or they're not in the right seat. Um, would you mind speaking to how you would manage that and, and how you'd suggest perhaps our listeners manage that if, if they're realising that, you know, maybe Bob in the sheep enterprise you know, he might get it, want it, but not have the capacity or whatever. How would you navigate that issue? Um, well, I think the first thing is to un- try and come at it from a position of understanding, um, you know, particularly if they've been a good performer and a good employee, what, you know, up until a point where you're starting to have an issue, what's going, what's changed or what's going on? Um, and that starts with trying to understand, you know, where they're at and what's happened. It might be that there's something going on in their personal life that, is causing them grief that you you've never known about before or haven't known about it might be um you know that they're starting to lose their passion for the role that they're doing within the team and that they want a new challenge or that it's becoming too easy or you know it might be that um you know there's there's some other thing um you know that's changed that you're not aware of so first thing is trying to understand what it is that they're um 
you know, where they're, where they're sitting and, you know, what questions can you ask that let you understand, do they get it still? You know, do they want it or what else might they want? And, um, you know, is there some issue or some things that are getting in their way? How can you understand whether they've got the capacity to to still do the role? So um, it's very easy, particularly for people who um, are highly motivated themselves to keep saying yes to things to the point where all of a sudden they stop doing everything well. Thanks, Sam. So how much of your time in your leadership role was focused on the thinking about your team so all the things we've talked about around where someone sits how they're going um how you can see them lift how you can communicate with them differently how you can hold them accountable if they're off track or underperforming in some way how to how to inspire a lift in them um prepping and then following through on straight conversations where people aren't showing respect within it. There's so many different dynamics at play. How much of your time and energy was focused on these issues in leadership? Yeah, so we had, I said I had a reasonable size team, but, um, and as the leader, I had to focus my efforts a bit. So I would probably spend 90% of the time I did spend on, you know, my four direct reports plus, you know, the six or eight sort of emerging leaders we had or the, you know, really high performers we had within our team and how can I, you know, invest into those guys to to help them um, continue to grow and develop within our business. So I would focus my attention there, but I would be asking the rest of my line management team to be to be thinking about their team. So I, I would probably spend, much, I would think, between, you know, four hours and, you know, a day a week sort of on that stuff, either in direct conversation or um, thinking about, you know, who is it that needs a little shove, you know, what's, what am I observing here that I'm not happy with or what's the feedback I'm getting from others in the business and how can I have a conversation that impacts that? Is it with them? Is it with their line manager? You know, what, what are the things that need to change? to allow that person to succeed? How am I creating a pathway for these people? You know, those kinds of things. So it's a fair bit of time. It's a fair bit of time. And I guess I ask that because I just want to remind and motivate our farming families and farm owners that this is what people are our one of or are our most important asset in farm business leadership. And, um, it's easy to get in the way and focus on urgent rather than important priorities on farm and and often these sorts of important conversations and the thinking that needs to go in to the preparation for these sorts of important conversations, it's really important. And so I just want to sort of make sure that to all of you that you're allocating enough time to do the critical thinking that is required in order to influence and inspire your team and that you're allowing yourself and letting it be okay just to sit with a cup of tea and think through how do I turn up to this individual and meet them where they're at and support them, um, overcome any issues and then build them up from where they are. It's such an important piece and often we're too busy to make this conversation around people management a priority in our days and our weeks. Sam? Completely agree, mate. And I think the other thing you've just said in there that's really important is, 
it's very easy to give critical feedback. It's much harder to catch people doing the right thing and, um, you know, encourage them to do more. So, and I think, you know, I've heard, I've heard it said that for every one piece of negative feedback you're going to give someone, you need to give them 10 positive pieces of feedback. Otherwise, you know, it can be quite detrimental to their, their development and they'll start to question themselves. And I think particularly with younger team members, um, that's even more important is that, you know, that so much of it is about confidence. And, um, you know, if, if they're getting, um, if all they're hearing is negative feedback all the time, um, they start to question their own ability. Absolutely. It's a crude analogy, but I think about people like car tyres. Um, if I let all the air out, um, I can't expect that tyre to function efficiently. But if throughout every day I just put a pound of pressure in or a couple of pounds of pressure in and I build them up just with positive feedback, thanks, well done, hey, you did great there, um, keep up the good work, thanks for another great day, I'm putting air in their tyre so that if there comes a time in two weeks' time when I need to actually take 10 pound of pressure out by giving someone some critical feedback, that I might take them from 30 pound pressure back to 20 pound pressure, but the car will still run. They'll still be okay and we'll still get a result. If I've beaten them up over the course of the last four months um, so that they're spinning at eight pound pressure and then I need to have a really significant and tough conversation, um, there's no there's no effectiveness left. They're out of puff. And so I do believe in putting air into their tyres and building them up and pumping them up so they're at 35-pound pressure so that I've got a bit, of, um, a bit of room to move if I need to have a straight conversation. Sam, would you um, comment or speak to that? Yeah, I'd agree with um, what you're saying there, Hutch. The other one I think is just really important is it's um, make the feedback meaningful to people. So, um, you know, you need to think about, you know, what it is that they might be looking for. So a lot of the high performers in my team, they actually didn't want to always be told they were doing a good job. Like they wanted to be said, well, you did a really good job on on that and you could have Im- you could have improved in these, you know, you, to make it a 100%, you could have made these couple of little tweaks. That's what they were looking for. That was positive feedback for them. You know, if they're just getting told they're doing a good job all the time and there's nothing they can improve on, then then they sit there and go, well, why am I getting a pay rise and how come can't, and I stepping up to the next level in the business? So, um, you know, they're looking for both for both sides of that at the same time, but then there'll be others that really do just need confidence and it's exactly like you described. You know, they need they need that positive feedback. It's a really good distinction, thank you, that, that positive feedback can be here's how you can do it better next time and that a lot of high performers are looking for that. Yep. Makes sense. Coming back to your sporting analogy, people might have just kicked 10 goals but they want to know how they can kick 10 goals again next week. What, what's, what's the next sort of 5% lift that I can make so that I can get this result again? Yep. Yep. Perfect. Now, we all deal with contractors and suppliers um, in farm business management. Does all this relate equally to someone who's not on your team and they might be operating to someone else's values and someone else's goals? How, how do you your communication change dealing with suppliers and contractors, Sam? It does. Um, but I guess, so we we were quite picky with who we would 
partner with. So there needed to be, I guess, values alignment initially. And I, I think I'd encourage all farming you know, owners to be be clear on what it is their values are and have that conversation with their contractors. You know, if you don't want your shearers smoking in the shearing shed and, you know, you want them to turn up half an hour before the run and whatever else, like, you know, be clear about that and why that aligns to your values when you employ them as a contractor. Um, it's okay to ask for that. They might not agree to all of it, but at least you've had the conversation beforehand. You won't be disappointed through the process and you can always fall back to that. So I think, yeah, being clear on what it is that um, is important for you and your business and how it aligns between the two businesses and what the common purpose is, is, is if you can clarify that at the start, then you've always got it to fall back on. It makes those conversations so much easier. And I guess it is a little bit simpler in a contractual relationship because you can always walk away from it. Yeah. Thank you. And I would encourage everyone to not just do that verbally, to to have those ground rules on the wall in the shearing shed or the values on the wall. And then it's a lot easier just to point to the wall and say, hey, mate, I need to see your lift. That's not okay. That makes it a professional conversation rather than pointing the finger at the individual and say, stop smoking. That's not okay on my turf. You know? Yeah. Um, so writing stuff down and getting it up public can make management a lot easier in my experience. Sam, um, last few questions, if I could. I really appreciate your time and it's great to go deep on this topic. Um, it's a complex one at times, um, but I really appreciate the way in which you're navigating this conversation and giving us the insights that you are. Um, what's been the biggest challenge that you faced at Oricon and the biggest change that you've had to lead and navigate? Probably um, probably the COVID scenario hutch last year. Um, so I, I remember it very vividly, but, um, you know, Mar- it was March last year. Uh, it was actually before that. So in February, the CEO, the CEOs would do a roadshow once a year and um, sort of come around and say hi to everyone. And so they had everyone together in the, the kitchen and they were talking to the whole Adelaide office and someone asked the question, what's the likelihood of us working from home, do you think, in um, the next 12 months? And this was right at the start of COVID, February. And our CEO, um, then she said, um, I think it's a, I think it's a guarantee. And I, I was just sitting there going, there's no way we're going to be working from home, right? Like our whole business really had worked in the office 100%. And I still remember getting up in March and in front of everyone and saying, right, take your computers. We're working from home. Um, we don't know when we're going to be back in. And my team flipped from being, you know, in person largely um, with only the odd person working from home maybe one day a week um, to uh, a team of 65 working from home five days a week. Um, and we we stayed like that um, all the way through until the end of the year with only maybe the maximum we got back into the office out of my team would have been about 15 people out of 65. So, um, yeah, that that's probably been the biggest change, Hutch, is just going from managing a team of people that you were physically present with every day um, to then having them work virtually. Two dimensions, not three dimensions. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> and yep. now as we arrive hopefully to the other end of that pandemic, 
what will the new reality look like for Oricon? Do you think they'll go back to how it was or will it be a, a hybrid of the two? It's a great it's a great question and one that we were talking about a lot before I, I went away. But I think it would be a shame if businesses lost what the good things are that they've gained out of out of COVID. So, you know, I think what we've proven is that flexible working does work. Um, and it it can work really well in certain circumstances. I think there's still a need for physical presence and um, you know, in terms of creating connection and learning opportunities for for junior staff I think one of the things that was a real shame through that is um, you know the amount of learning that people do just by being around other people and observing how they do what they do and the way that they conduct themselves you don't get that when you're virtual Um, and also you know we we just talk a bit about the water cooler conversations or it's the innovation that happens by bumping into someone and having a chat with them about what you're working on and them suggesting an idea that's a bit left of field and um, you go and explore that. So, you, yeah, that, they're probably the two things that I think are really challenging online. But um, you know, I don't think I don't think Oricon will go back to everyone in the office full time for some time. It's so interesting, Sam, isn't it, to see just the impact that COVID has had on so many different businesses across so many industries, and and the positive adaptation that has happened as a result. I think it's it's fascinating across all industries for farming families i just sort of want to shout out that now more than ever having a bookkeeper who might be interstate or an administrator who is from another part of the country um, or someone helping you with your marketing or branding or graphic design or it um, it now more than ever having remote workers helping you get a result um, is more possible than it has been Um, So I want to encourage you as you think about how you might delegate activities and build out your team, but they don't all have to be on your farm and in your town. Um, There's amazing skill sets jogging on the spot, wanting to help people just like you. And they can be from the Philippines, they can be from India, they can be from London. Our team at Farm Owners includes John in the Philippines, Whitney in England, who helps us with content creation. We are an online and a team speckled across Australia, um, as I've touched on. And I think that we've got a great culture. Um, We're a really strong and united group and we've got a bright future and we are online. And so for all of you, just think a little bit more laterally perhaps about where your people that are supporting you towards your family goals are sitting while they're working for you. Any comment there, Sam? Yeah, I'd agree with that, Hutch. And I think the other the, the other challenge that was is obviously clear for the farming community is this sort of transient workers that were coming on vacation and were doing a lot of those roles in you know in those particularly fruit picking and some of those things in those regions. Um, you know th- that workforce has been significantly shrunk. So as a business owner, you can either sit there and say, well, you know, my workforce is gone and you know, I'm I'm staffed, or you can sit there and think about, okay, well, how is it? I'm now competing for a smaller pool of resources. What do I need to do as an employer to make sure that the the people that are available are in my driveway and not someone else's? And you know, I think focusing on that. But the other opportunity that is there is that there's a lot of people across, um, you know, across Australia who have been questioning what it is that 
they really value in their lives and, you know, where it is that they want to work in the future and live. And, um, you know, perhaps there's employment opportunities out there with people that perhaps aren't out of the ag industry or, you know, are considering a change in their lifestyle or their career and you might have something really attractive to offer to them. So thinking a little bit creatively about, you know, what's going on in the world at the moment and how it is that you position your business to take advantage of that would be the challenge I'd put to this group. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's so important, Sam, that as employers, if finding and keeping good people is our challenge, as it is for so many, that we've got a really strong value proposition to people who are going to come potentially and work for us so that, to your point, driving up our driveway is more compelling than driving up and staying at someone else's. And so I like the idea of having five or six bullet points that are written down that make you unique as an employer compared to any other farmer in your region. Um, If you want people to be attracted to your business and then stay, the um, strength of those five bullet points on what it is that makes you unique as an employer is really important, perhaps to your point, Sam, especially at this time. Well, I just don't think, like, we haven't seen the back of COVID yet and, um, you know, it's particularly challenging for a number of industries at the moment in terms of, um, you know, work and, and being able to, you know, see a future for for people in their in their chosen profession. So I would guarantee there's a number of people considering what is it that they need to do or where can they, you know, how do they transition to be able to, um, you know, get what they want out of their lives. And, you know, one of the advantages agriculture has is that it has been largely unaffected, you know, through this process other than some labour shortage, but the work's still there, the demand for what you produce is still there. Um, the job stability you can offer and the lifestyle you can offer is pretty awesome. So, you know, thinking creatively about what it is you need to do to attract those people, I think, would be something I'd certainly be thinking about if I was running a business that was struggling to find labour at the moment. Yeah, a mentor of mine brutally once said that we get the people we deserve and that if I can't find good people, it's not that they're not out there, it's that my value proposition for who I am as an employer just isn't strong enough. And that that the thing I like about that is it puts the responsibility of finding and keeping people back squarely in my seat. I can't use the excuse that they're just not out there. Um And I think there's truth in that, even for farming families and even in remote areas. There are people in your region who don't find it hard to find and keep good people. So if they can do it, why can't we? Sam, thanks for speaking so openly about your leadership role in Oricon and having that as the example as we sort of flex and consider this conversation on people management. Just um, flipping now to your role with us, what are you most motivated about um, in your role at Farm Owners? Um, A couple of things, Hutch. I think just seeing the transformation that our Platinum members um, go through over the three years and then what they go on to do after that, um, you know, is is just um, amazing. It um, inspires me every day to to see where people are going with their business. Um, so that, that's the first. And then I guess the second one is um, being engaged within the rural community again and having an opportunity 
you know, to do that after being in the corporate world for the last 10 years. So, you know, really just enjoying being back a part of the community that I grew up in and, you know, being able to share some of the experiences I've learned um, here and also be part of this awesome um, project that is Farm Owners Academy. Thanks, Sam. And I mean it sincerely, mate, when I say that personally I'm just delighted to have you part of our team and um, in the role that you're in, I think that it is absolutely your genius and I'm just so excited about the strategy and the direction that we've set down and to having you part of our leadership team over the next few years so that we can grow and improve and help more farming families across Australia. Brilliant. Thanks for the opportunity, Hutch. Mate, just in finishing... Two questions that I ask in this podcast that I want to throw at you. Um, what's the best piece of advice that you've ever been given? Mm, good question. Um, knowledge is light to carry around, Hutch. So invest in yourself. Perfect. And what would you say to a younger you? Um, probably push less, I think. So, you know, um, you know, be clear on what it is that you want and um, but, but be okay if that doesn't happen in the time frame that you want it to happen in. It will happen eventually. So, you know, I think just enjoy the journey and that's certainly a focus for me at the moment is, um, you know, really enjoying what it is that I do. Um, so, yeah, I think I think those, those couple of things. Awesome, mate. Great comments. So people management genuinely is a really significant but also a, a tough and challenging um, part of leadership in small business and in farm business management. Um, it, I think this conversation for me just highlights how delicate, how important and how thoughtful we need to be in how we go about looking after and turning up to the people that are in and around our team and our families. I think the way that Sam does that and has sort of demonstrated that he does that as a young leader in a big global company is um, is really impressive. And hopefully in listening to this conversation, there are insights in this for how you can better turn up to your family and your business and your suppliers and your contractors so that you can sort of strengthen your management and leadership capability in your business. To all of you, thanks again for listening. I really do appreciate that you've been online and that you've enjoyed this. Um, Sam, thank you again. Thanks, Hutch. And um, take care, everyone. All the best as this season unfolds. Thank you and bye for now.